to be more proud. I am proud of you. It's a lie. It's just fake bullshit. That's all it is. Just over here. Not thinking on the podcast, being all unprofessional. At least I'm uh, not over there being uncomfortable with emotions, though. I'm always uncomfortable with emotions. That's why I write. Welcome to the Nightmare Box. Presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the still holiday hangover, Kristen Pennington. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. (laughs) Doing the sober edition for Kristen. I uh, have already started, so this this dynamic might be hilarious. We've done this before. Yeah. Because when I, uh, last you're, you're year, not a raging alcoholic. <laughs> when I last year made my resolution. You take breaks to... when you wake up and your liver hurts. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> last year I made the resolution I was going to go on an alcohol hiatus and drink more water and go to the gym and that crashed and burned. So new year, new me. <laughs> new year, new me. <laughs> and uh, what we're going to talk about today, team, uh, we have notes. Thank God. We've got pages of notes. we got shit to talk about. Both have notes. Yeah, it's That's not going to not gonna go like, was it the last one that we did where mm-hmm. we literally had to title it? This They don't they all go. They can't all be winners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this time we've got some sort of a direction and it is on brand. So we're doing better in 2020. You know, we're, we're coming at the world hard. Kind of relevant to the homework assignment too, but you got damn right it is. Delve into that later. Um, but I was thinking... The past couple of days, because a few days ago, Kristen and I finally got around to watching the documentary on Netflix, Jim and Andy, which is about um, Jim Carrey's um, method acting, is that how you would put it? Um, During the filming of Man on the Moon, which is a film about the, he didn't like to be called a comedian, but the comedian Andy Kaufman. Uh, It was brilliant. Almost tear-jerking. If I had worked with him on that set though if i had been one of his co-actors i might have wanted to kill him by the end yeah of the <laughs> no, for sure he seemed um, unbearable i love jim carrey uh both in his films and in his like terrence mckenna stage that he's in right now where it's all you know we are all god because that's what i think uh so i like jim carrey on that level where most people now think he's gone insane i think he's finally found himself he seemed a little sad though in the interview yeah um on jim and andy though like a lot of people that have that like mentality like watts for instance i feel like Mm -hmm. seem enlightened and jim seems disheartened by it almost at certain points and in there for sure um he's given some talks about it where he's a lot more like upbeat where he's like this is a great thing like we're just doing this but yeah i think at the point that that was being filmed it might have just been like a daunting realization that he'd had on a psilocybin trip (laughs) he's just like this is great i don't care (laughs) yeah it's just me you're all just me and i can make my face look like all of us and that's (laughs) what i do um but we watched that the other day and then i was walking around the grocery store trying to figure out kind of what we would do for today's show and because uh, Kristen was hungover and in bed and I'm uncomfortable in the grocery store, as we've always <laughs> talked about. Uh, so I do a lot of thinking to not focus so much on all the other shit. Um, and I was thinking about like quirky writing styles. And then it hit me that we could just do an episode on like signatures um, for both writers and filmmakers that make them stand out. Yeah. So. 
Uh, we've got a few examples of both. We got a couple we'll deep dive, and then if we run out of uh, deep dives, uh, we'll hit up the honorable mention section. <laughs> um, before we dive into it, though, I don't know if, uh, which granted we've only done one so far that I still haven't finished, but um, I don't know if uh, you've been having this experience with the uh, homework assignments, but for me, um, we still have some stuff I have to go back and shoot, but I did start editing it, and mm-hmm. like this topic in particular is kind of cool because these are um, established writers and filmmakers and stuff who have made careers out of their style. Exactly. And, this first assignment in particular, the shots that I thought would look all right, I'm not in love with. And then mm. the shots where I was kind of experimenting and like playing around that I was a little worried might not come out great, like actually looked kind of cool. So, when you put it that way, this might be the perfect episode for this month's homework yeah. assignment. You're dead <laughs> ass. Like, I was like, what does she mean? I was like, we're not talking about, you know, Michael <laughs> well, Bay. And <laughs> it's like, well, no, but focusing the... in on exper- like uh, individual. Where they broke the mold. Yeah, where you just yeah. kind of experiment. Like with this film, I have never, on any of my own work anyway, um, used anywhere near as many color gels as I did in this one. Mm-hmm. I, I went pretty heavy-handed on the colored gels on the lights, and I was definitely a little like, God, you know, I hope this turns out okay <laughs> while we were filming. And then I was uh, looking at the footage on the computer the other day, and I was like, you know... That was pretty cool, actually. Oh, no, you've shown me a few of them, and they look fantastic. I, uh, on second glance, need a lot of work in my actatorial uh, <laughs> endeavors. I'm definitely no Jim Carrey. Um, but, uh, but like all of no, these the, people... The shots look great. The transitions look great. I'm really excited to see how this film comes out at the end of January of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> <Shut up. Shut laughs> but all of these people that we're going to talk about today i'm sure at one point in their career we're like well fuck it this is what i like we're gonna give it a go exactly. and hopefully it works out and then it kind of became their thing yeah so and most of them like i've got a guy i'll just go ahead and name him uh because he's in my honorable mentions and he doesn't come up in the conversation but like kafka um who wrote the trial published that in 1925 um if you're unfamiliar with Kafka, it's it's worth the read to at least do the trial or try Metamorphosis. It's one of those guys you either love him or hate him, but he's fucking intense. Um, basically, <laughs> died penniless and unknown, and it wasn't until after he died that people looked back and fell in love with him. He died while writing The Hunger Artist because he couldn't eat because his throat was swollen shut with TB. So he's kind of a very dark... That's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, Dark-ass fucking writer. Or like a Van Gogh, you know, the classic story of Van Gogh. He died penniless, shot himself in a field, or was shot in a field. It, yeah. It's a little dodgy as to exactly what happened that night. Which makes uh, no sense, because he was an incredibly talented artist. Incredibly talented, but he was outside of his time. And then after he dies, he is Vincent Van Gogh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but you, stick to your guns. Die on that hill of your signature. And I think that's... that's I think bad. also, um, be willing to branch out. Like, don't just yeah. only do the one thing. But yeah. Um, you can be too contemporary. You <laughs> cannot be too experimental. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a con- conveniently timed episode. Because, yeah, I was thinking yesterday that... Uh, that's like a 
red and green colored gels are not going to be my signature. Yeah. But I was like, well, that was fun. Glad glad that one turned out. No, but color might. Yeah. You know, like the intensity of color. Or some of these shots that you've gotten that are like a little off kilter. They're, you know, different kinds of transitions and stuff. Things that I notice that I don't know how to explain because I don't know what the words are. But you have a signature in your films that I've picked up on through watching your different things. And I've definitely got something of a signature developing in my writing. Um, I don't feel but like it, I have a signature. Well, you're not. My signature yeah. is I'm stumbling around. <laughs> <laughs> might be it. I think that's what I do with the writing. It's like, is Brett literally just conveying an anxiety attack every time he sits down? Yes, that's exactly what's happening. But, <laughs> but I think it works well. I think you're brilliant at it, but... Enough of, you know, jacking ourselves off. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Real quick before we move on. Are, are we going to do this? We're going to intro this shit back and forth? Go. Real quick before we move on. I am just <laughs> curious because that wasn't a thing that was in the, which it, it shouldn't be. That's not normally a thing that would go in the script. But like the weird color lighting for all the night scenes wasn't remotely in the script. And that was just the thing where I was like, I'm going to do that. Like, exactly. Did it completely change the way the story like was for you? I think for the night shots, it matched exactly what I wanted to convey. Um, there were changes that were made, and I'm not upset about those, because we're basically just trying to tell the same story, which is the whole point of the adaptation. Yeah. It's, 20 years from now, people are going to go, oh my god, they're fucking brilliant. But <laughs> you know, right now, they don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know if you had a moment where you were like that's not at all what i was thinking <laughs> no uh, what you did with the lighting conveyed the mood of what i was trying to write so i would agree for the nighttime shots more than the daytime shots that we nailed the exact mood and i think the fault of the daytime shots were they didn't have all the dark edgy you know shit that was in the nighttime shots I don't convey happiness very well as an actor. Uh, <laughs> I kept bumping into the camera. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's move on. We spent an hour and a half trying to get me to take a, a book <laughs> and put it out of a Christmas stocking. Like, like uh, it, and maybe that was it. We were more relaxed when we were shooting the nighttime stuff. At the by the time we got to the daytime stuff, it's like we're trying to hit this deadline. And that might be it. It's just the shift in mood there. Maybe it'll all make sense once the film's done. I've only watched like two quick scenes out of it. Um, but you did something with a revolver in that film that is just next level pro. And it's a lot more important than anything we were trying to convey in the daytime scenes. So yeah. I'm beyond proud of you. You're like a Nine Inch Nails album being played backwards <laughs> and holding a camera. Uh. So, who you got? Who's your first writer? Oh, we're going into the thing? I've got going some excerpts while we're at it. Um, I'm going to be reading um, like a paragraph, two paragraphs out of three different books. Yeah, I was going to say, he's got like three or four books stacked yeah. around the table. Um, I'll tell you which ones they are as we get into them. But uh, my first writer is the guy that I'm reading right now. I've just found him. I've known his name for a while because I'm a huge fan of the Beatniks, like the Kerouacs. And uh, they're all going to run right out of my brain right when I go to list them. I've got five of them in my head and they just dissolved. But like <laughs> Kerouac and uh, what Kerouac kind of bleeded into, which became Hunter S. Thompson, 
Um, before those guys, there was a dude named William S. Burroughs. Um, I believe, but I cannot remember the character's name, uh, Burroughs is given a pseudonym in On the Road by Kerouac, where Burroughs just kind of keeps popping up and he's on heroin or cocaine and he's fucking flipping out on, you know, Not waitresses fun. in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> like everywhere Kerouac goes, on occasion he runs into this. I, I want to say his character's name was Bill, but I can't remember. Mm. Um, but I've been reading William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, which was released in 1959. So he's like the early beatneck post-World War II fucking wrapped on his, you know, on morphine, like, running around the country on whatever their equivalent of a Greyhound bus was. <laughs> Insanity. You know, fucking Fear and Loathing of Fear and Loathing was written 25 years earlier. Um, and William S. Burroughs, in The Naked Lunch, which is the only one I can speak for, um, uses a series of vignettes that revolve around like this drug sick country, you know, this just, it's, it looks perfect, but he's like on the outside. And so he's paranoid about all this 1950s shit. Um, and it's like very intense and disturbing in its descriptions. Yeah. The, it, it reminds me of red to yeah. me. I'm like, what? Like, it what reminds me of like early Marilyn Manson where it's like, Everlasting cocksucker, yeah, that song. You know, where it's just—it's like, oh my, oh Jesus, oh fuck, Christ, you know. <laughs> um, and I did a little bit of research on it. Um, it was written using automatic writing, which I tried to explain poorly to Kristen. Yeah, I definitely thought um, you meant like predictive text. <laughs> you were like predictive text, and I was like, again, it was published in 1959. The typewriter was still kind of new. <laughs> People grew up in houses without typewriters. <laughs> they That's didn't have how. Smartphones? No, turns out that doesn't happen for like another fifty <laughs> no fucking selfies? years. selfies. <laughs> Jesus, how you live that way? Um, but automatic writing is—if you've ever taken a drawing class, a lot of people like to use automatic drawing as an exercise. So, like, you almost close your eyes and just let the pen wander around the page for like thirty seconds, and then you try to make a drawing out of whatever that scribble is. So mm. like that little bump might be a nose or this might be an eye. And they're like, this is my Picasso, Mona Lisa, you know, um, automatic. Do what? I never quite did that, but I used to, when I was a kid, I would take a piece of paper and just put random dots all over the page. And then I would connect the dots yeah. and then try to make a picture out of whatever the shape was. Oh, that's fucking interesting. Yeah, I used to do that when I was a kid. I want to like, do that right now. <laughs> when I was bored in school or whatever, I'd literally <laughs> just like take a pen and just be like, dot, 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 and then like connect them the best I could because they'd just be randomly placed. Those are the like, differences in our personalities. Like? <laughs> I'm just fucking committing with my pen and then going back with a pencil and you're like, nope, I'm making my own connect the dots. <laughs> It's a giraffe. I think I did actually do a giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> but automatic writing is a little bit different and it's kind of hard to convey. I've only been able to do it like twice and I had to be like out of my mind, fucked up, almost like talking to get it the right way, you mm -hmm. know? Because it's stream of consciousness. Um, but you're typing it. So that kind of creates this weird... Like it's hard to fall into a stream of consciousness ramble 
on a piece of paper yeah. unless you're really you key. I mean, dictated to yeah. someone who types it for you. Kind of. <laughs> but he was on heroin. So I guess he figured it out because Burroughs wrote this entire thing in a form of automatic writing. And I was reading an, an article earlier where he basically said that his brain was taken over by like this hostile entity where like, it wasn't even him. It was that crazed drug addict that was screaming at him from the back of his head yeah. and that's where we got the naked lunch I, I mean granted to be fair I've never read it but I, I will admit from the few excerpts you've read to me I have no fucking clue what that book is about <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> it's had very to, confusing I had to google it because I didn't understand basically it's made out of these vignettes these like really tiny sections that uh, followed the same little group of characters but he wrote it with the intention of it being read in absolutely no particular order. If you start in the middle, read to the end, then start at the beginning and come back to the middle, the story is going to make about as much sense as it does if you start at the beginning and read all the way to the end. Which you can read it backwards. Nonsense. Exactly. <laughs> Zero sense. It's a fucking mindfuck of a book, and I'm in love with it. Um, but I've, I, I can't you know, read much of it because we're here, but I've got uh, the William S. Burroughs Naked Lunch Restored Text that was edited by James Grarholtz and Barry Miles. Um, and this is from page 28 and 29. And in this section, um, Burroughs' character is walking around with a guy named Benway who's like touring him around this um, beautiful place where like all the perfect things happen. A utopia, if you will. <laughs> I was like, what's the word? Just go with the definition. <laughs> Um, and they walk into this bay, and this is the place where they hold the INDs. So this is, again, 2829 William S. Burroughs, Naked Lunch. Um, INDs, says Benway, irreversible neural damage, over-liberated, you might say, a drag on the industry. I pass a hand in front of a man's eyes. Yes, says Benway. They still have reflexes. Watch this. And Benway takes a chocolate bar from his pocket, removes the wrapper, and holds it in front of the man's nose. And the man sniffs, and his jaw begins to work. He makes snatching motions with his hands, and saliva drips from his mouth and hangs on his chin in long streams. His stomach rumbles. His whole body writhes in peristalsis. I don't know that word. <laughs> Benway steps back and holds up the chocolate. The man drops to his knees, throws back his head, and barks. Benway tosses the chocolate. The man snaps at it, misses, scrambles around on the floor, making slobbering noises. He crawls under the bed, finds the chocolate, and crams it in his mouth with both hands. Jesus, these INDs got no class to him. Benway calls over the attendant who sits at one end of the ward reading a book of J.M. Barry's plays. Get that fucking IND out of here. It's a bring down already. It's bad for the tourist business. It's <laughs> heavy. Turning a man who is so comfortable he barks like a dog for chocolate, which yeah. kills dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <is> <laughs> William fucking bad Burroughs. For the exactly. <laughs> So many levels in that one little scene on page 28 of an entire novel by The Naked Lunch. I'll do a full review once I'm done with it, but that's basically where I've left off so far is page 28. So I finished my coroner book. I'm on to that. <laughs> Who's your first director? Um, 
an old childhood favorite. Bill uh, Cosby? No. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Burton. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely uh, probably one of my first, as a kid, directors that I ever uh, really enjoyed. Yeah. And, um, like, started to notice, like, that certain filmmakers and stuff do have very distinct styles because with Tim Burton, um, you get the very gothic style, like the yeah. black and whites, the pinstripes, the like punk rock, you know, like yeah. gothic. Yeah, and like all like of I his... listen to the Murder Dolls, like we've listened to those together, and that's like Tim Burton. I don't know why I keep comparing it to music, but <laughs> um, but like all all of his stuff is you know like I said blacks and whites pinstripes like very mm. gothic the characters are um almost always kind of these skittish like wide-eyed outcasts or he uh uses a lot of like young rebellious like girls having to face their yeah. fears and stuff like that so he has like he uses his wife and everything yeah right? <laughs> he uses Johnny she... Depp too <laughs> um yeah she yeah. was in Fight Club he was not Helena Bonham Carter mm-hmm. and uh Johnny Depp is in a ton of his stuff too um, but yeah, like all of it, it's not just his actual visual style, like his themes and his characters and stuff are always kind of similar to, um, he like uses like really thin, pale, wide eyed yeah. characters and they're always kind of outcast or like I said, he like has like a lot Cartoonish, of Cartoonish like, almost. Like, yeah. That's actually a point I was going to make. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I did not mean to interrupt <laughs> No, them. you're fine. I know um, Tim Burton. You've not read William Burroughs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was reading an article earlier where they compared yeah. it to, or compared his style to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I think is how you pronounce mm-hmm. it. I have never seen it. I've seen like little clips of it. Um, it's definitely a film that I would like to watch one day because it looks very interesting, but it's a 1920 uh, German silent horror film. Is that a vampire movie? Um, oh, I think I'm thinking Nosferatu. Yeah, you're thinking of Nosferatu. So, um, which is also another one I'd like to watch because yeah. I think it's very no, similar We're, we're in buying style. the 100 classic horror films and <laughs> we're getting stoned and binging them for a weekend. Um, <laughs> again, I've never seen it, but I think uh, Dr. Caligari is a, a guy that like essentially like drugs people and uses... Um, I don't know if it's, like, his assistant or what to, like, kill them. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like, a 1920s, you know, violent horror film or whatever. But um, it features, which I think Nosferatu does, too. So I think in style they're pretty similar. Um, like, really dark and twisted, like, visual styles. Mm-hmm. Like, sharp edges, like, curving lines. And, like, the structures of the buildings all seem to kind yeah. of weirdly lean and twist in ways that buildings shouldn't. Yeah, and they actually... Uh, and that film painted lights and shadows and stuff directly onto the film set. So, like, the <laughs> shadows and stuff you see, um, and part of it are, like, actually painted mm-hmm. onto the set to create, like, more dramatic visual effects. But um, they were, like, comparing Tim Burton to that style. And um, I do think that it's interesting because... Uh, sorry, I don't know why I keep saying uh in this podcast. You're, sober you're sober. Is, <laughs> sober Christian is stumbling for words. <laughs> But The Nightmare Before Christmas is one of my favorite films of his. Um, You know, it always has been since I was a kid. And I I do think that it's very interesting that even in his live-action movies, the characters are just as whimsical. Like, he did The Corpse Bride and stuff, too. So you kind of have these... Yeah. yeah, um, But you have these cartoons that he's done that are very imaginative and still dark. And, like, a lot of Mm -hmm. his uh, films kind of deal with death. But it's not... 
in a scary way. It's almost this weirdly inviting thing. Yeah. Um, Come know, be a part of us over here watching the world. Yeah, with yeah. like Beetlejuice and stuff. You know, it's I like forgot he, he did yeah. Beetlejuice. I was sitting here thinking, <laughs> what is the big Tim Burton movie I love? <laughs> he did Beetlejuice, so that's one where it's like, it's like about death and mm-hmm. sadness and all this stuff, and he's like trying to lure her in and Sleepy Hollow, Edward Scissorhands. Like it's did Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, he did some like hardcore serious movies. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Uh, Sweeney Todd. He did Alice in Wonderland. Sweeney. Yeah. Like all, but all of his films are like these almost visual like fairy tales brought to life yeah. and like these... like dark acid trips. Yeah, <laughs> especially <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. But I I appreciate the fact that even his like I said the live action characters almost feel like cartoon characters mm-hmm. that he just literally brought to life. So. Yeah, Tim Burton is probably my first number one favorite. Oh, he Hell also yeah. did Big Fish, which I had forgotten. Yeah. And Big Fish is like prime example of a literal fairy tale happening in live action. Like, it's such an outrageous story. I think I've seen that one. Is that all set like on a farmhouse type? Yeah, well, sort of like... so. Well, this... that's where the kid is like at the beginning. Well, yeah. Some so dude the... shows up in a Cadillac. The dad is on his deathbed, mm-hmm. and the son is, like, there to, like, kind of talk to him. And, and he's telling him all the yeah, stories, and like, he keeps going back in time. And he, yeah, yeah, and he thinks his dad's just this big liar. He's, mm-hmm. like, he's always been, like, this person who, like, makes everything so grandiose. That, yeah, that was and fucking brilliant. at the funeral, all of the characters he tells them <laughs> stories about show up at the funeral. So there's, like, a, uh, like a giant, yeah. I think, and then, uh, I can't conjoined twins that are like joined at the hips the and like people all these from characters. the town yeah like mm-hmm. literally show up to the funeral and his son has that moment where he's like oh god all the stories he was telling me <laughs> were actually true so like that's like the most prime example of literally bringing this fairy tale i want to rewatch that than life yeah. to life i remember i watched that once but <laughs> i think i was film. like blitzed out of my brain <laughs> trying to like comprehend it and <laughs> it's I'm, a fun one yeah it was awesome I completely forgot Tim Burton did that, though, until I was, like, Googling his movies earlier, and I was like, holy shit, he did the fish. <laughs> I've got <laughs> a... fun. I've got a honorable mention that matches the Tim Burton. Who you got? But not one that anybody would expect from this motherfucker. <laughs> Dr. Motherfucking Seuss. <laughs> there you go. Cat in a Hat, 1957. Two years before The Naked Lunch. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I thought Dr. Seuss was, like, 30s like i didn't realize that it was the cat in the hat came that late but lo and fucking behold disney came first <laughs> i was uh i thinking... know he was a cartoonist for the war propaganda but <laughs> oh, i was thinking about that earlier that was disney too but <laughs> dr seuss was a raging anti-semite didn't he like hate children too I think it was anti-Semitism. One of them was an anti-Semite and one of them hated kids. And I can never remember if it was Disney or Dr. Seuss. But I'm not going to ruin the cat in the hat for anybody. I was thinking about that earlier, though, because you brought up Dr. Seuss. And uh, I'm a big, not that I I dislike Dr. Seuss by any means. I do like Dr. Seuss, but I'm a big Shel Silverstein fan. And I feel like if I was going to do an honorable mention, writing-wise, that would be mine. Because Shel Silverstein... Well, the Sneetches would kick Silverstein's ass. (laughs) <laughs> well, I feel like... They had stars upon theirs. <laughs> and like with Dr. Seuss, it was very played down specifically for children, which there were like... Well, I think it's massive lessons to like give to a three-year-old, but it's designed so that the parent can read it and the parent might also pick well, up on the obvious message, you know. Well, for me... He's talking about racism and 
rhyme when he does the yeah. snitches. And oh, the places you'll go is like, yeah. you know, all the things you can People do. People give that at college. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, which to be fair, I'm probably not as familiar with Dr. Seuss's work as uh, I am with yeah. Shel Silverstein. I had the big yellow book. We read that <laughs> motherfucker every night. <laughs> Shel Silverstein, like a lot of his poetry is very I similar. It. It's yeah. uh, like really adult themes wrapped up in children's poetry mm-hmm. and like their little like cartoon pictures go along with them. But there's like one about love and it's like you know i'm the only part of love that could show up today yeah. and then there's the giving tree yeah the giving tree <laughs> and then, um, i think it's called the mask where these two people wear mm-hmm. masks to hide who they are and cross by someone who's exactly like them and never even know so it's yeah. like all these really deep adult themes with beautiful pictures yeah and shell wanted to be like a serious like adult poet you know like a street <laughs> poet like a you know Def Jam poet. You know? <laughs> and, uh, that, One of my favorite poets. Th- this episode could go on for hours. <laughs> just talking about Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein. <laughs> we should do one just Super dedicated to... Yeah, no. Dr. Seuss, Shel Silverstein. We should do like kick-ass kid stories. I'm, I'm writing it down. Kick-ass kid stories. I own almost all of Shel's books. I'm missing a couple, but I own most of them. I donated my Dr. Seuss book to Katie's classroom. We'll have to get another one. So, no, I didn't. Mom wouldn't let me. No, I did that one and then Mom yelled at me. <laughs> Regardless. Sorry, uh, Mom. <laughs> um, my next one that I've got on my list is my favorite writer, period. Cormac got, McCarthy. You're quick. my my official favorite writer is forever gonna be chuck polinick because i have zero cormac mccarthy things tattooed (laughs) on my body i've got a polinick quote tattooed on my arm um but cormac mccarthy is like you you have heroes when you're a teenager which is polinick uh, that you're never gonna lose, you know. Like it's that ACDC song that you you play and you pump <laughs> your fist. In. Or for me, it's Rise Against because I've got them tattooed on my body. <laughs> <laughs> Rip Cage, Rise Against quote. Um, that's gonna be cool when I'm 45. <laughs> Nobody knows who the fuck that band is. It's like having a warrant tattooed on your forehead at this point. At least it's but, a deep sounding quote. It would be worse if it was well, like. Well, it's a deep quote. Yeah. yeah. I walk on wounds that seldom prove to slow me down. It's <laughs> like, it's right above a massive scar I have on my belly. It's, it, it's perfect. I'm a poet. Um, <laughs> but you have those heroes from your, you know, adolescence and then you have those heroes when you're in college and you're like holy fuck that person like opened up a whole new goddamn world and then i'm sure you know like 10 20 years from now there's going to be another hero where it's like that's the person that i designed myself around while like our kids are growing up you know (laughs) but for me it might be (laughs) It might be Dr. Seuss. I might lose my fucking mind and it just becomes Dr. Seuss. Like it goes from childhood hero to senior citizen living home. I've got a big crooked goddamn pinstripe barbershop hat and I'm screaming at children for no fucking reason. They keep trying to come in there and bring me candy and I'm like, the cat in the hat, bitch. <laughs> Losing my mind. All my heroes might collide. It might be Joyner Lucas, cat in the hat versions but <laughs> rapping dr seuss yeah. 
So you don't know me, but uh, you might know Cormac McCarthy from uh, some some great books. You know, maybe it's 2005's No Country for from Old Men. Multiple episodes of this podcast. Yeah. or it might be 1985's Blood Meridian, or 1971's Child of God, or it might be 2006's The Road. Like if you're like more into the make yourself cry at a father son tale, The Road is your book. If you're a new dad. Read the Road. It came out in 2006. Or The Orchard Keeper. Or Orchid. Or, it's Orchard. Like A-R-D. Orchard. Orchard Keeper. Is that it? <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that word. But it was his debut novel, and that came out in 1965. This is an old-ass bastard. He's got another book coming. He's prolific beyond fucking mention. He's Cormac motherfucking McCarthy. I found Cormac McCarthy and David Bowie in the same year, and that year just has developed my entire personality. It's been fucking awesome. Not comparing the two of them, not saying that they write anything alike, but I would suck. Cormac McCarthy's dusty old dick <laughs> for a temporary tattoo of his autograph on my forehead. <laughs> Cormac McCarthy does not believe in punctuation at a time where I believed in nothing but the semicolon, okay? <laughs> it was my favorite symbol. I thought it gave me all this depth that I could write like one like 500 word goddamn sentence I just kept adding semicolons. And then I found Cormac McCarthy. This motherfucker doesn't even use commas. Okay? <laughs> Cormac McCarthy doesn't believe in quotation marks. You read him and, like, it takes you three pages and you're on board with him. You're like, yeah, fuck quotation marks. Just start a sentence with a large letter and you're fucking good to go. Cormac McCarthy's the shit. If you've never read him, go back. If you think that I love No Country for Old Men, the movie by the Coen brothers, which if they're not on your list, I'm adding them as an honorable mention. They're not. You need to go read no Country for Old Men, because it reads like a movie. It, 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 it's mind-blowing. He's fucking brilliant. I found out today that he grew up four hours from where we used to live, and I never went to his childhood home to, like, hug his mailbox or some shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> Run, so you don't... You don't like him or anything, do you? No, 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 no. No, I am gay for Cormac McCarthy. He is 87. <laughs> He's my favorite dude. Like, I'm fucking for him. But um, he doesn't use commas. He uses conjunctions. So you get sentences where you would say, I went to the grocery store and I bought rice, beans, and milk. But it would be like, I bought rice and beans and milk and cheese and groceries and like that, 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 that. And then period. And then like every third chapter, you might find a comma. And that comma means more than anything you've read because that comma is on purpose. He uses so little punctuation that when he does, it creates this beautiful flow. Cormac McCarthy is my favorite goddamn writer who's ever lived. <laughs> I shouldn't have drank before we started doing this. Anymore. I had a chocolate bar and that just hit me. <laughs> I didn't I give you that one. That one's not my fault this time. <laughs> Have you read any Cormac McCarthy? No. You're on assignment. <laughs> I'm handing you this book. You're not allowed to walk out of that room until you read it. Mm. I read No Country for Old Men in like two days. It's not a long book. It's only like 300 pages and it goes by in a blink of an eye because of the way that he's written this book. It, it, it doesn't. No. It's too perfect. 
<laughs> it's so fucked up, like on a literary level, but he learned how to do that in school, editing papers for his professor that he was working for. Like he just started cutting out random pieces of punctuation and the professor would be like, that's a great paper. And then he would just cut a little bit more and then pretty soon there'd be one comma in an entire research paper. And the professor loved the fucking thing. And Cormac is... If you know him, or if he's listening, just have him call me back. No, joking. But uh, this is a quote... You can email us at the Nightmare, bo- or at Nightmare Box <laughs> Yeah, Cormac, if I know you've only done one interview in your entire career. And <laughs> he did an interview with Oprah Winfrey because the road wound up on her book list. And that's the only one. That's it. He's the greatest writer of all time. He talked to Oprah. <laughs> Maybe he really likes Oprah's show. Well, he hates writers. That's my favorite part about him. But like he's got the in that interview. He's like, "Yeah, I don't hang out with writers. I hang out with scientists." Oh. He doesn't believe in anybody who doesn't write about death. He's like, "If you don't talk about life and death in your book, you're not good at writing." Like he's 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 got this very fucking. Like, and we found out he moved to Knoxville in 1937, and I just, I, I can't believe I never drove over to find his house. We're doing that. We're going to go home and not see our friends. We're driving to Knoxville. <laughs> <laughs> We're driving Didn't across the state to go see Cormac McCarthy's childhood home. <sighs> Sorry. I might have nerded out. <laughs> might have. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. <laughs> what sucks is I should have dead him last. Yeah, I was wondering why you did nerd him second. Out about that but this is the Cormac McCarthy No Country for Old Men. Uh, the I don't know how to identify it. The cover's got the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Road, so it came out after The Road, this version did. But it's on page 249 of that version. Uh, chapter 9. It's from the perspective, if you guys have seen the movie, of the sheriff... That was played by Tommy Lee Jones. I almost forgot his name. I would have beat myself up forever. Another great dude. Um, but in the book, you get a lot of like these kind of journal entries, or maybe they're just narrated by the sheriff, and you get these insights into his character throughout. And the book's a lot more about the sheriff's relationship to this case than it is, you know, about sugar. Um, and there, it, it, it's just an incredible story. But <laughs> they have relationships with death. And you've got the lawman who has tried and is seeing himself fail at an old age. And you've got the young assassin who's just fucking shit up and doesn't care. And there's like the middle ground guy who's like in his 30s and he's kind of teetering on the edge and the assassin's trying to kill him but he doesn't give a shit about the assassin the lawman's trying to catch him but he hates the fucking law like he's like in this perfect yin and yang balance and go read the goddamn book mm-hmm. but page 249 my daddy always told me to just do the best you knew how and tell the truth He said there was nothing to set a man's mind at ease like waking up in the morning and not having to decide who you were. And if you've done something wrong, just stand up and say you've done it and say you're sorry and get on with it. Don't haul stuff around with you. Guess all that sounds pretty simple today, even to me. All the more reason to think about it. 
He didn't say a lot, so I tend to remember what he did say, and I don't remember that he had a lot of patience with having to say things twice, so I learned to listen the first time. I might have strayed from all of that, some as a younger man, but when I got back on that road, I pretty much decided not to quit at it again, and I didn't. I think the truth is always simple. It has pretty much got to be. It needs to be simple enough for a child to understand. Otherwise, it'd be too late. By the time you figured it out, it would be too late. Cormac like McCarthy. Motherfucking no country. I like that. <laughs> Since you did Cormac. <laughs> He's not talking to me. <laughs> I just kissed an old man's photograph. Since you did uh, Cormac, I'm going to do my third one next because it's a little more in vain with uh, that style. So, second slash third uh, <laughs> filmmaker is... Uh, Two-thirds of a filmmaker. <laughs> is uh, Guillermo del Toro. Ooh. So... Great goddamn choice. <laughs> uh, granted, I only have probably two of the films that really stand out for me. Guillermo's done a lot of stuff that has been he successful. He did a lot of horror movies too, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what he's known for. Um, the Spanish horror films. Yeah, so um, he, like his style is, like a lot of his stories kind of have like a deeper meaning, like mm -hmm. old fairy tales and fables and like allegories and stuff that are then brought to life in these um, somewhat more real life situations yeah. that are like parallels for, you know, old fables and stuff like that. And he uses, um, like religion and, uh, like really creepy imagery and creatures and stuff like that to kind of make his points. And, um, a lot of just, like almost what? like musings, like tension and regret and stuff like that in his films and hands down, I have heard The Shape of Water is good. I have never seen The Shape of Water, so I can't really talk about The Shape of Water. Shame! <laughs> I've heard it's really good, though. But hands down, my favorite one on this list is Pan's Labyrinth. And I am not normally a fan of... Is it because you're an alligator? <laughs> I am not normally a fan <laughs> of... <laughs> David Bowie? Uh, I'm not normally a fan of movies that you have to read the subtitles for the whole time. I'm, I'm thinking um, of a completely different movie. You are. Pan's oh, Labyrinth is a very dark movie. What is the one that had Bowie in it? That That's I, the Labyrinth. <laughs> which one had the big blind guy plucking the eyeballs into his own head? I think that's also the... Oh, I don't know. It's been a, I haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth in years. Well, now I don't really know if I know who we're talking about. Well, <laughs> I'm familiar with some of the. Uh, go ahead. I'm about, sorry, I interrupted at a time I where I had, was ill equipped. You're like, why is he singing David Bowie? David Bowie's in the other like, film. Yeah, this is a, a film that's completely in subtitles. I can't remember if it's in German or what language it's in. It may be in Spanish, honestly, since he's uh, Hispanic. Yeah. But um, uh, so Pan's Labyrinth is. I haven't seen it in years, so I can't go super in depth into it, but a very dark twisted yeah. beautifully done film where um this girl uh basically is like 
taken away from her home by, I think it's like a fairy or a spirit or something. So I guess sort of similar setup to the labyrinth. <laughs> and um, she's taken to the middle of this labyrinth. and um, well, That's where the, the blind I know creature... That- puts the eyeballs in his head if I under I'm gonna shut up because I don't have the ability to google right this second (laughs) and like I said I haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth in years I know that there is like one really signature really creepy character so that might be in this film I'm gonna google it it and I feel so bad it's not that one um but I shot your dude in the foot and neither one of us could go like but anyway so this girl is given um I think it's three challenges she has to Uh, get through in order to finish the labyrinth and I, if I'm remembering right she does not succeed it's been a long time since I've seen the movie but it's a very dark creepy traumatizing film of this little girl trying to get through these like really harrowing instances in um, the labyrinth that she's been taken to and it's like the main character is creepy as fuck like I can't, I can't remember what he looks like I think he's like half goat or something no he's like a, like a minotaur <laughs> he's a minotaur yeah, yeah. And, like, it's a creepy fucking film. Like, beautifully done. And, I like, I saw it when I was, like, 18, I think. And I was just like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. <laughs> but um, he's, he's done some big commercially successful films. He's done Pacific Rim, and he did Hellboy, and I think Blade II. Um, but I actually, and I wish I had written down the year it came out. I think it was, like, in the 90s. And it, or was. I haven't seen it in a long time. A big fan of... Uh, the movie Mimic, because that hmm. that movie was really fucking creepy too. And I saw that when I was a kid, so maybe as an adult, I wouldn't think it was as creepy. But as a kid, I was like, "What the fuck?" I've, I don't think I've ever seen Mimic. So there are poisonous cockroaches. I can't remember the city that are like killing the children in the city. So the scientist develops another insect that hmm. um, secretes this like fluid that is supposed to kill the cockroaches and she designed them so that they would naturally die off on their own. They don't die off on their own. I think they go live in like the underground subways or something like that and grow really fucking big because it's, yeah. a, it's a monster movie. And um, it's called Mimic because they have the ability to mimic human beings. So oh, they can shit. like, yeah. Like, morph into, you know, something that looks more like a human and stuff. And you can still tell it's kind of a creature, but, like, they can imitate stuff. And like it's kind of like the cockroach guy in Men in Black. It's sugar water. Well, it doesn't climb into your skin suit, though. <laughs> kind of like that, where it's like you can tell the characterizations of an insect through the people? Well, or is it, like, cockroach If people? I'm remembering right, it it's just a big, creepy, dark, shadowy creature oh, that gotcha. sort of resembles, like, a humanist figure. I don't think it ever, like, out in the open actually looks like a person. It just kind of, like, takes on their characteristics a bit. Um... But they made this weird clicking sound, and that's how you knew they were coming. And that's, like, the one part I remember the most is, like, they'd be, like, hiding, like, you know, in the dark. Like, oh, my God, don't let it find me. And you can just hear this clicking sound, like, coming mm-hmm. closer to you. So, uh, yeah, that movie fucked me up as a kid. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've heard The Shape of Water is really good. I'd like to see The Shape of Water. But I know, like, a lot of his films are you know what I have wanna... deeper undertones, yeah. and they're very dark. And there's always kind of a message to them. So... Guillermo del Toro. If I could get your name out. You did it a lot better than I did it earlier. I was like, this dude, Guillermo. Guillermo. Uh, You know what I want to see, which is in the theaters, that new Adam Sandler movie, The Uncut Gems. I have not even heard of that. I've listened to to a lot of podcasts. Um, 
and it's been mentioned on like 10 shows in the past like two days um it's like about a pawnbroker adam sandler plays it there's people in there playing themselves but like it's been compared to like a oh another one of my people on the notable mentions i'm gonna interrupt you with a song that has nothing to do with it (laughs) a martin scorsese film (laughs) (laughs) that steve carell one where he makes the little like figurines and stuff looked really good too i don't know i really want to watch that one too but that was all i had for Guillermo. so what's your What's your well, my notable mention is Martin Scorsese. I've not seen The Irishman. I cannot speak to The Irishman, but The Goodfellas is one of my best or one of my favorite films. Um, is Raging Bull Scorsese? I believe so. I I, I love him. <laughs> I would hug him almost as much as I would hug Cormac McCarthy. Um, but my last writer that I have, like uh, written down with any detail is a person that I have, and I'm ashamed to say it, so, you know, don't beat me up too bad. Uh, I've only recently started to read. Somehow, me and him never found ourselves, you know, (laughs) outside of the the one novel, but I I didn't appreciate that one. I need to go back to it. Is Kurt Vonnegut Jr. (laughs) I I, I found this... Chuck Palahniuk didn't make the list. Chuck Palahniuk I love, but I brag about him so much, I purposely did not bring up Palahniuk because I've, if you thought I flipped out about Cormac McCarthy, I've got everything that dude's ever written. He's releasing another book like around the time this episode comes out. I'm definitely considering trying to get an autograph copy on his website. Like, fucking love Chuck Palahniuk, but... Uh, notable mention, Chuck Palahniuk, for the fragmented com- combination of everything that I love about these other three guys. He just kind of became it, and everybody wrote him off for Fight Club, and you should all just go, you know, read Survivor <laughs> and choke and go fuck yourselves. <laughs> choke is actually a book. He's not telling you to choke and go fuck yourself. No, no, choke, <laughs> choke is a book, and I'm actually blown away that Chuck Palahniuk does not have a book called Go Fuck Yourself because uh, he's, he's brilliant and he, he earned it. <laughs> Read Knock Knock. Listen to Knock Knock. Turn this off. Go to YouTube. Go Knock Knock. He put that in a Playboy magazine and it's one of the greatest short stories ever written. But we're talking about Kurt Vonnegut. Because <laughs> I decided that my three mains were going to be old white men who all died. Uh, <laughs> the exception of Cormac McCarthy. May he never die. I love you. Um, but you might know Kurt Vonnegut from his... Um, classic novel at this point slaughterhouse five which was released in 1969 has to deal with um his experiences in world war ii and i believe dresden is the name of the city it got bombed overnight and killed like 150,000 fucking people and he was in a meat locker um and they poked their head out of the meat locker and the entire city had been completely leveled by air raids and so the name Slaughterhouse Five. It's more or less about it. It's got one of the greatest opening lines in any book ever, um, which I I think it's I might get it word for word, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, the story you're about to hear is more or less true, especially the war parts, and it's 
his signatures where he wrote in straightforward, concise sentences. Um, he used simple language, you know. It's basically written at a fourth grade level. There's You, you don't need to be like hyper smart to pick up Kurt Vonnegut. You just have to pick up a Kurt Vonnegut. Um, it allows complex ideas without getting lost in the weeds. He's not using all the syntax of like your Hemingways, who's on my honorable mention list. Um, you're like, I don't know what that word means, you know, anymore. You can make your way all the way through a Vonnegut without having to have a thesaurus next to you. Sorry, I keep clicking. <laughs> Fidgety. All that chocolate you gave yourself. <laughs> the, yeah. The... <laughs> I was like, get your energy up. I'm on it. Wound myself up too much with the McCarthy material. (laughs) Um, But most importantly, he tended towards the unreliable first-person narration, which is very hard to pull off. It's hard to pull off first-person in the first place. That I'm chink. Um, Because you're like, well, there I was. And it's like, where are you? You know, I don't believe you. I don't think you were there. Um, He's the dad in Big Fish. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. Uh, like, it, it's difficult. Like, you have to be really good at first person to really pull off first person. You're going to fuck that up a whole shitload. But he would have an unreliable, which is even harder to pull off, first person narration. So the second you walk into Slaughterhouse Five, He's telling you this is more or less true. And you're like, what part's the true part? It's what gave other honorable mention, Hunter S. Thompson, Gonzo. (laughs) Is this concept that I don't know if I can believe every word this person is telling me. How much of this is this person giving me horseshit that tastes good, that, you know, colors the landscape? And I found Vonnegut not through Slaughterhouse-Five because I read that one as like an accelerated reader book when I was a kid and I really want to go back to it. But I found him through one that we found at the book exchange up here in Missoula, Montana called Armageddon and Retrospect, which was released in 2008. And I am in love with Kurt fucking Vonnegut. I can't believe I didn't find him. There's a whole point in the book where like he threatens to sue a cigarette company for letting him live 40 years older than he <laughs> wanted to be alive. Like He was in his 80s and he was like, I'm suing this cigarette company because they promised me that I'd be dead in my 20s and I don't know <laughs> why the fuck I'm still here. Um, very William S. Burroughs in that regard. Uh, very McCarthy in the regard that it's very simple. You can grasp the main line so this is from the kurt vonnegut armageddon and retrospect the version that has the spill for sure i've got it i'm a professional (laughs) okay um has the introduction by his son mark vonnegut and i bought the book just reading the introduction which says a lot because normally the introduction is the worst part of the story and it's written by his son it's this beautiful view of his father and I, I, I'm in love with it but uh, if you go to our Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, you can see a picture that I took of this exact excerpt um, 
but this is from Great Day, which is a short story Vonnegut wrote. And in this story, um, there is a wormhole for time that exists on this old battlefield and the story is set in the future. And modern day army is going back to this World War One or World War Two battlefield. And they know that if they stay within this boundary and charge through, it'll distract the Germans, I believe, so much that the Germans will stop fighting so that the Americans and the English can overtake them and win the war, basically reverse the course of the battle because the Germans will be so like, what the fuck, that they won't be able to you know, hold their own. But halfway through Great Day, the overzealous commander of this group of guys uh, more or less grabs the narrator and pulls him through the time warp with him and they are like in a different place experiencing um, then from the perspective of utopia hmm. it's it, I'll, I might read two excerpts from it I love Grade Day <laughs> this comes from again that book that I already Cited, so don't sue me, Kurt Vonnegut, even though you're dead. Um, page 66. There was two dead men in that sorry hole. This is when they're still... They haven't crossed over yet. It's like the Germans are like freaking out, and but they can see everything that's happening. So they're like kind of a hologram. There was two men in that sorry hole. Two live ones and mud. I know that two was dead on account of one didn't have no head and the other was bloated in two. If you got a heart and you come on something like that in the thick smoke, ain't nothing else in this universe gonna be real. There wasn't no more army of the world. There wasn't no more peace everlasting. There wasn't no more Laverne, Indiana. There wasn't no more time machine. There was just Peritsky and me in that hole. If I was ever to have a child, this is what I'd tell it. Child, I'd say. Don't ever mess with time. Keep now, now, and then, then. And if you ever get lost in thick smoke, child, set still till it clears. Set still till you can see where you are and where you've been and where you're going, child. And I'd shake that child. Child, do you hear, I'd say. You listen to what your daddy says. He knows. Ain't never gonna see no sweet child of mine, I expect. But I aims to feel one, smell one, and hear one. Damn if I don't. <laughs> All the heavy excerpts. And the final lines. So he goes through the time warp. Spoiler alert, if you've not read this book, um, I'm only ruining one story. They're all incredible. He goes through the time warp thing, and the battle ends, and he's delirious. Or so they think, because he keeps blabbering about the future. And none of them have experienced what he's just gone through on the great day. 
So I lie here blind as a bat and I tell him how I got here and I tell him all the things I see so clear inside my head about the army of the world and everybody like brothers everywhere, peace everlasting and nobody's hungry and nobody's scared. And that's how I come to get my nickname. Don't hardly nobody in the hospital know my real name. Don't know who thought of it first, but everybody calls me Great Day. Hurt motherfucking Vonnegut, man. I just lost a page. Oh no. I lost page one of Break all your spines. Well, I read books. <laughs> Kurt motherfucking Vonnegut. Now the mood's all heavy and serious. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta bring it back up. Shove some right. chocolate in your direction. Notable mention, director, Rob motherfucking zombie. Of course. <laughs> Halloween one. Perfect. The only good remake in the history of film. <laughs> All that gore porn. <laughs> Goddamn Firefly family. <laughs> I'm going to take this in a completely different direction because okay. I already did Del Toro, so <laughs> can't, can't do that again. Um, my third one is Wes Anderson. Hmm. So there is a rule that they teach you in what film did he school. Do? I'm gonna get I'm to I'm sorry. It. My apologies. Settle yourself. Me apologies <laughs> for Del Toro. <laughs> so uh, there's a rule that they teach you in film school called the rule of thirds. And um, the concept of the rule of thirds is that you can divide the image on your camera up into three individual panels, both vertically and horizontally, and those kind of crosshairs that cross at each of those intersections mm-hmm. are kind of ideally the visually compelling spots of the frame. So if you're putting a person in their frame, their eye line should hit somewhere in that second, upper yeah. third, or whatever, that you should not be putting anything in the center of your frame because it's just not visually interesting to look at when you just square something up in the middle. And... Um, Wes Anderson has made a career of breaking that rule. <laughs> uh, he is a big fan of like symmetrical shots where everything kind of looks the same and everything's like centered down the middle and his characters are interacting in the middle of the scene and stuff like that. And um, very unique style. Hmm. I think he pulls it off because it's not like I just sat down a camera and I'm sitting here in our living room with Brett in the middle of my shot, yeah. you know, just filming it like... Wes always does really interesting, unique perspectives on all of his shots. Like, he's a big fan of really bright colors and patterns, and his characters are always wearing these really, like, unique costumes and stuff, and it's, like, super contradictory to the film itself and the performances, because a Mm -hmm. lot of the time the characters are just kind of, like, these, like, uptight, strict, like, giving deadpan um, performances while the scene is just vibrant and alive around Mm -hmm. them. So... Kind of a neat uh, contrast between his actual characters and his stories versus his scenery. Um, he apparently, which I am not super, super familiar with a lot of his films, so um, I didn't know this, but he apparently is a big fan of the tracking shot. Which Did we... he do, like, the Hunger Games? No. <laughs> well, you're not giving me, like, any films to reference, so I'm like, this dude sounds awesome, but I don't, I don't, don't want know you if to I'm... interrupt me. Sorry. <laughs> Um, he's apparently a big fan of the tracking shot, which we did in our, um, first homework assignment, but, uh, 
My film that I have seen that I really enjoyed that he did is The Royal Tenenbaums. Hmm. And um, it's a depressing fucking film. It's a very <laughs> bright, vibrant, beautiful film. He also did um, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom, and then The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a stop-motion film. So, um, yeah, he's, he's a fan of putting things in the center and kind of breaking what's considered um no-nos in yeah. film school but he he does it in these very animated lively ways that like you never look at it and go oh that that feels wrong huh. so i don't think i've ever seen anything he's done the royal tenant bombs is a really good movie we but he keeps that. everybody like dead center and he like not always but he does a lot of shots where like things are like centered up and stuff and it feels very symmetrical and like that's not normally considered an interesting shot mm-hmm. to look at you normally look for flow shots where things move. Yeah. And, and like contrast and settings kind of make your eyes naturally gravitate to one area or the other. So um, when everything is like all like perfectly squared up and even like the theory is, you know, your eyes don't have like a place to settle or whatever. And breaking up the way shots look kind of gives you an interesting point to look at. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but yeah, he's he's made a career of being like, fuck that, I do what I want. <laughs> Straight and center, like a play. Like everything's happening right here. Stare. Yeah. I do have two honorable mentions. Um, Darren, Me too. Hit your first, I'll hit one. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky, um, who did Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream. <sighs> he's known for his incessant pacing and building yeah. dread throughout his films. So by have, the end, you feel like you're having an anxiety attack. I have three movies I will never watch again. One of them is Requiem. Because <laughs> like, it was a nightmare of an experience. It was beautifully tragic. I, I never want to see that movie again for as long as I live. <laughs> but I will never forget that film. I, Black Swan is a pretty I've never seen Black well. Swan. Now that I know that it's also done by him, I'm afraid of him. It's a tense <laughs> movie. It's, I saw it in theaters, and it was damn good in is theaters. Is that about the uh, the murder of a ballerina? Is that Black Swan? Uh, it's basically a ballerina's psychological descent. Oh, I um, gotcha. She is the understudy in Black Swan and like really wants to be the star. And then mm. um, another character comes in who... It's kind of ambiguous if the other character is a real character or if it's her darkness inside of herself, like as she's being consumed by this desire to succeed. And she does, in the end, I think, if I'm remembering right, stab herself on stage. God uh, damn. Yeah, it's but I think she's also hooking up with the director of the play or whatever, too. So it's like her psychological descent into how badly she wants fame. Mm. So it's a damn good movie like it's a very good film and it's shot in his traditional way where you feel like you're the character and like you're just having a panic attack as the yeah. film revs uh, up no, i have to watch it we have to re-watch requiem and then i never want to see it again for as <laughs> i haven't long as seen I it in a long time so i do need to revisit it yeah no i've got a serbian film requiem for a dream and uh, inception are on my list of movies i never need to see why is inception because I watched it once. Uh, I watched Requiem, Inception, and the Matrix trilogy in two days. 
and I fucked my head up <laughs> while I was in the service. I was like, we were snowed into the dorms and couldn't go anywhere, and I had like six bottles of Merlot, so I just like put on these different movies and got fucking wrecked through like <laughs> a bender. <laughs> the Inception uh, bled into the Requiem, and then I was like confused and having all these weird nightmares. What's real so. and what's not? Yeah. Inception is nowhere near as intense as Requiem, and Requiem is like one tenth of a Serbian film. Like, but trust me, if you love anything in your life, never go watch a Serbian film. It'll hurt you as a person. It will not make you better. Um, my next honorable mention. <laughs> um, my last director is my boy Alfred Hitchcock. He does not get out of this conversation, but if we opened with him, you guys would just roll your eyes and end the episode. Alfred Hitchcock's a bastard, or was a bastard, of great fucking filmmaking. The the whole falling down the steps and Psycho, the the birds. Building tension without ever really showing anything happening. Like yeah, even in the birds. spending a whole movie not showing fuck all. Like even in the birds when she's being attacked like in the attic or whatever... It's a lot of repeated shots of just a bird flying towards the camera, and like, yeah. you don't really see her getting attacked at all. It's just her, ah, ah. It's like super tense. It's the like the whole premise of what would later become like that seventies eighties slasher film moment, without all the release of the seventies and the eighties slasher film moment. Like if the seventies and eighties are random bar sex. Hitchcock is the tantric guy you meet at the yoga studio. Like, <laughs> I'm going to sit there for an hour and a half for one scare, and when it happens, I'm fucking done. Get me the fuck out of here. I want fuck all to do with Norman Bates. <laughs> uh, my final honorable mention is J.J. Abrams. Hmm. Um, is that that controversial Star Wars character? <laughs> he's he's done he has done some of the more recent star wars ones um he did a tv show called fringe that i don't know if i ever got past either the first or second season of it but what i saw was a really good show yeah um i think when he did the star trek films though is when he went down in absolute <laughs> infamy for this um he is a massive 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 fan of the lens flare yeah and um I'd never really noticed it until after I had watched the Star Trek movie and then I was watching Fringe and I was like, yeah, he does it in everything. Why is this all happening in a halo? (laughs) Why is this entire film a circle? I give him honorable mention though because I do not do it in um, my films by any means. I I would need a reason. If we were shooting a space film, I would add lens flares maybe, but um, I would need a reason to put a lens flare in my films (laughs) because they... They're a little distracting. Yeah, unless you were shooting it from the perspective of a drunk who just got like lost staring at the you know, sun. <laughs> but um, I have found for some reason as our cameras and our computers and our TVs become crisper, better quality yeah. and the photos are damn near you're there in the room perfection that I have become a fan of older style looking photos so even they feel more authentic yeah like even um on my cell phone when i take photos i will go back in and purposely edit in 
film grain and like fuck with the contrast and the fade and stuff so it looks a little more like it was I'm taken all about contrast <laughs> in 45 degrees <laughs> so that it looks a little more like it was taken with an actual literal film camera and um i do tend to put lens flares on my photos semi-frequently <laughs> <laughs> so that's why jj abrams gets honorable mention because i am a big fan of well-placed lens flares on a photo God i don't damn. do them in my movies though <laughs> Um, my final honorable mention is Agatha Christie because I needed to uh, include one woman on this entire episode <laughs> or I was going to sound like a sexist. Um, Agatha Christie wrote uh, about 40 goddamn best-selling novels and one play that is going to escape my brain right now. Might be the exact same. Might be based on the novel I'm about to bring up. Um, but she had mystery novels by the balls for so goddamn long and the honorable mention is the one that you and i tried to read but uh oh i was down for revisiting it kristen's not a big reader <laughs> so, that's not true i own a lot of books i just so it's, I don't it's have agatha, a lot of free time it's agatha's uh and then there were none which was released in 1939 very well-known fact for people that like to like read up on um, writers and not a big known fact for people who buy books in bookstores is um, it used to have the N-word in the title. It's based on the, um, what in America was, you know, like 10 Little Indians, that song, but it was 10 Little, yeah, in England <laughs> in 1939. And the novel follows the plot of the song. So you've got, you know, like, one of the little dudes, like, fell and broke his neck, and the other little dude, like, did this other thing. But it's Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. A murder mystery that defined how murder mysteries have been written since 1939. I wish I had a lot more of, like, 2000s and stuff, but there aren't a lot of... Um, people experimenting in our generation all the experimenting happened last year uh, by my account according to my list here around 1925 so almost a hundred fucking years ago when kafka and hemingway were roaming the world and maybe we're due for people like you you don't think 50 shades of gray was just really reinventing i don't think that anybody's <laughs> gonna mention that on the level of an Oscar Wilde or a Jane Austen or a Mary Chalet or a... Yeah, I don't think that... You know, I'm teasing. Oh, I thought you were serious. No. No, okay. No. Um, so all that to say, these were all people that we've talked about today. I don't know how many you've got on your sheet. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven that I've got on mine and you've got... Five. So... That's 16 people, quick math, <laughs> who were told actively while they were creating the works that we've talked about that they weren't worth a shit and that it wasn't going to go anywhere and, you know, that they were fucked up in their vision. So take that grain of salt, do what you will with it. But I'm going to add it to the recipe for pizza dough because <laughs> I've got that rising up over there on the counter we're gonna make a monstrous pizza you can find pictures of that at uh instagram 
Instagram, so that would be <laughs> at Nightmare Box Productions. Or you can go on over to Twitter and we'll tweet your pictures of our pizza. <laughs> Nightmare Box Pro. We can swing on over to Facebook. You tell us about your favorite writers and why they deserve to be here. And if it's J.R.L. Tolkien, I'll kick you in the testicles. You can do that at facebook.com slash Nightmare Box Don't roll your eyes at me like you read Tolkien. I have read Tolkien. <laughs> but you do it again? Maybe. I'd read Cormac McCarthy on this episode. I'd go for another 14 hours. Uh... <laughs> Find us on over at YouTube at youtube.com slash Kristen Pennington, where you can watch the dolls and all the other things that she's working on, or you can swing on over to youtube.com slash the nightmare box, or is it? It's probably going to be Nightmare Box Productions. We haven't made it yet. I'm tracking. I thought it was already there. My bad. I mean, the YouTube exists. We haven't set the URL yeah. yet. It's probably going to be Nightmare Box I'm not good at plugs. <laughs> or you can go on over to the website at... TheNightmareBox.blog. And you can find the dolls up in the top right-hand corner. You can find the book, hopefully. I need to figure this out. Uh, the Madman Diaries, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but don't pay that kind of money. Just send me $10, and I will send it to you no matter where you are in the world. Did we get them all? I think so. You mad at me yet? Terribly upset. Oh, Jesus. It's going to turn into a whole situation. I love you, sweetheart. I love you. And I love you guys. And we'll talk to you next week. That was a lot clankier than it normally is. Well, it's made of metal. <laughs> <laughs>